Oh, just like school. <laughs> uh, welcome to Attica Shrug, the podcast about Southern culture and politics. Um, things that have happened this week and whatnot. Um, with me, as always, are Chad Watson. Howdy. And David Dykes. Hey. And I'm Wes Cheek. I'm no longer in the basement at Tulane. I'm on the second floor at Ritz Macon. So there we are. I think I must have told you before, my high school history teacher was a Civil War reenactor for the Confederacy. I'm not sure entirely what I think about Civil War reenactors. Um, he's also now our neighbor in Florida, but he... Uh, and all the classes would have to go outside, and he would wear his uniform and, sh- and like, do his gun and stuff. I might have mentioned it on here before, but there was, <laughs> there was a fun, one of the, when I was in high school, the front page of the um, was a Playground Daily News at the time, Northwest Florida Daily News, had a, had a photo on the front page about a completely unrelated story. But in it, there was a guy wearing a T-shirt that said, Friends Don't Let Friends Reenact Confederate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> And everyone who kind of noticed that in the background thought it was the funniest. I have a Japanese Civil War oh, reenactor in my novel. Which which Civil War? <laughs> We've had a lot. Oh, 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 not reenacting the... The American Civil oh. War. He travels He travels to the U.S. to reenact uh, the American Civil War. I am sure that person exists. 100%. Sure. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, but I know that uh, I think it just came out of an assumption that, um, that, 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 yeah, probably that person did exist. Any strange hobby, any strange activity, in it, no matter how rare, there's someone in Japan who that's, what they, that's all they do. Well, one of the things that he says is that if he had read about the Norman invasion first, then he might be in Hastings reenacting there. Do they do that? They probably do. I'm not sure, but I think so. I was there at one point, and it seemed like I remember that. Anyway. So one of the, this probably, I mean, this is probably true of you in San Miguel as well, but one thing about living in Kyoto is that, you know, it's so old and so much history happens here that there's, there's so many historical markers that go unnoticed. So like the Oninran, one of the biggest civil wars in Japanese history that ran back and forth across Kyoto for like decades. There's like a little marker near our house. It's like, this is where it began. And then we were walking to go out to eat the other day and we have to walk through the uh, Hamaguri gate on the old Imperial palace. And that's like one of the great incidents from like kind of the Meiji restoration. And there's still bullet holes in the gate from the battle that happened there. Uh, Anyway. And the, uh, the site where Sakamoto Ryomo was, was, Ryomo was assassinated. It was a convenience store for a while. Now it's like a cheap sushi place. <laughs> Moving on up. Um, yeah, so we're going to do an episode this week, kind of uh, a little bit more of an in-depth one about uh, our friend and yours, Dolly Parton, um, local he- hero, worldwide celebrity, Dolly Parton, and I didn't realize, i kind of been tracking, there's this kind of, a, it seems to me an explosion of interest in Dolly Parton. I didn't know there was this big podcast that was put out by WNYC with uh, Jad Abenrod, who I also didn't know was from Tennessee. That was interesting. Uh, and and there, there seems to be a lot of conscious, especially I noticed on, in left-wing circles about Dolly Parton kind of uh, retconning her as a 
activist figure, or not, maybe accurately so. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a few questions from from this week I'm curious about. Uh, my first question, um, and then we can move on from this very quickly, was R.E.M. a 90s band? Uh, their first stuff was in the 80s. Their most popular stuff, I think, was the 90s. Yeah, like 82. So, that's a no. That's a yes? Eh. Not for me, but for a lot of people. Eh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was my answer. Not for me. I mean, maybe for some people, but not for me. The 90s was the most important decade for you? I guess. I guess so. Sure. Why not? Uh, no, it was just an argument I was having this week. And I guess it comes down to if they were for you or not, right? Uh, but by me having that argument, I was sent a lot of footage that I'd never seen before about... Uh, just a lot of early REM performances that are really, really good. Um, one of them being on a children's television show in New York in 1983, which is pretty good. Um, my other question was, uh, it's Thanksgiving this week. It's Thanksgiving. And I we've been kind of discussing, now that we live in Japan again, what we're going to do for Thanksgiving, whether we're doing Thanksgiving or not. And I said, well, I'll make gumbo, and my wife is is saying, well, I think your family used to eat gumbo on Thanksgiving, but that's not really what we're going to make for Thanksgiving. Um, so I'm just wondering, are there any things that you guys ate on Thanksgiving that fall into that category of being peculiar? I'm assuming neither of you ate gumbo no. on Thanksgiving. No. What is, like, East, are there any East Tennessee regional Thanksgiving things? I think we ate pretty much square like American idea of Thanksgiving of turkey and cranberry sauce out of a can and um, um, well sweet potatoes I guess they're all over um, people people eat them all over the Are place gunshots? no it's just fireworks it's the usual Mexican fireworks it's some saint or something <laughs> yeah. <For> gunshots. <laughs> saint Winchester <laughs> But, um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, sweet potatoes are really big in the South, and they're big in uh, Tennessee. And, um, yeah, just the usual stuff. Rolls, um, uh, sweet potato casserole of one sort or another, uh, stuffing, and turkey. You got one. He double gobbled. I, I actually, I, uh, I love going to my cousin's. For Thanksgiving and there as kind of a joke and kind of not a joke um, uh, my cousin Annie uh, her husband John who is a sweetheart of a guy is a kind of a regional manager for fast food uh, places and they bring mm -hmm. fast food from whatever uh, sort of business he's opening up so it's often like Captain D's fish or uh, something like that that he brings to the big Thanksgiving dinner. And like I say, it's kind of a joke, but then everybody eats it and likes it. So um, uh, not not a complete joke. Captain D's on its own smells really good. Captain D's in the aggregate after your friends have been working there all day smells awful. Yeah, yeah. I gather it's not a great place to work. I think people get um, a lot of grease Burn burns there. working there. A lot of friends get robbed working there. Hmm. I was wearing the uh, buttons that Annie made me yesterday, though. I had them on my jacket. She made me some nice luchador buttons. Nice. So, Chad, I'm guessing you guys are about the same as David? Yeah, we're about the same. 
we would eat turkey. Well, we always ate ham for Thanksgiving because mm. my grandfather hated turkey. Really? So my grandma, yeah, my grandmother would make a ham just for, like, just for my grand. But she would make turkey for everyone else. Huh. Um. So, I'm assuming no oyster, no oysters. Oysters aren't a part of Thanksgiving for you guys. No, no oysters. Um, yeah, it was always like uh, sweet potato, sweet taters, mm. yams, cranberries, that kind of. Mm. We uh, had the oysters in our oysters. Uh, stuffing every once in a while. Yeah, like oyster dressing and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. it's finally start, it's starting to be like the oyster season around this time. I get into arguments all the time. This is a complete... Uh, offshoot of this, but uh, people tell me that there isn't really uh, an oyster season anymore, that I only imagine this, but I'm going to insist that that's not true, and you should not eat oysters before around Halloween or after around It's like uh, months with ours in them, right? That's what people say generally. I just think it's when the water is cold enough, that they get, when it's warm they get this really kind of nasty, because they're just filters, right? They get this kind of nasty gooey kind of form, and if you you eat them in the summer. Well, we were always told, and I always think, it's, there's more bacteria and they're more dangerous in the summer. I've been contradicted and told they're mostly factory farm now, so it doesn't matter. But if you're getting real oysters, it should be when it's cold enough that they're not full of bacteria. But also when it's cold, they, they kind of harden up and get kind of like a tighter shape and taste better. They don't taste like just a mucus. I think I've never had those oysters that don't taste just pretty much like mucus. But that's the Raw. thing. That's the thing because if you have oysters that aren't really good, they're not that great, right? Like oysters are yeah. fresh. And, and I've had good. decent. I've had good oysters. I've had good oysters in New Orleans at the track and um, a few different places where I've been pretty happy with the oysters. I guess. Hmm. I want to mention yeah. that today he... I spent all day long um, canning pickled beets. Oh, nice! Which seems like a very southern thing to do. Uh, a couple of good. friends here and I got together and, um, yeah, but put, put up some beets, as they say. And now I have some leftover juice from it that I'm going to pickle some eggs in. And I think that's a very, very southern thing. You guys ever eat yeah, uh, pickled eggs off a bar? I've been in places where they are. And you Honestly, didn't eat yes, them? I have done that. <laughs> you know, I don't... I think it was probably in New Orleans, and they probably looked a little suspicious to me. Hmm. I ate pickled eggs. They looked very suspicious, but I still ate them <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why. Were they white or pink? They're pink, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. They were pink. I think they were pink. I want to say pink. In the light, they looked pink. <laughs> I've also ate uh, pickled pig's feet in a bar before as well. Yeah, I, I haven't actually much... eaten that. I don't see them as much as I used to. It seemed to me like when, when I was a kid and we used to drive from Florida to Arkansas to visit my mom's family, you used to see pickled pig's feet like at all the, like, the gas stations on the counter. I don't seem to see them as much anymore. Or maybe it's like we don't stop at, like the, we stop at chain gas stations now. Um, I bet Bucky's has them. Dude, I went. Have we talked Bucky. about Bucky's? <laughs> I finally went in a Bucky's. That is insane. That is a different world. I walked in and lost my goddamn yeah. mind. What is it? It's like everybody. Oh, it's my crazy. God. Bucky's. I don't. <laughs> like it's like seven hundred kinds so... of uh, uh, beef jerky. 
Yeah. I took Musashi because I'm like, I have to show you this. And he's like, where are we? What's happening? <laughs> he said, that's the nicest barbecue grill I've ever seen. There is one thing I do like about Bucky's is they, they post their wages on those big signs over the register. And they actually seem to have oh, decent no. wages. I mean... Oh, that's yeah. Good. No, they have good wages. They have a good starting wage, and it shows. They're like, we you get three weeks paid vacation. Uh, here are your benefits. Here, here are here's our wage structure. It's like, well, I support that. That's nice. Oh, Did so you ever good. ask them like why? No, I was just gonna ask, like why they sell those uh, pet my beaver shirts to teenage girls. Like, do you ever? Ask <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm. I was gonna ask if uh, for Bucky few... is not a right to work beaver. <laughs> <laughs> But Chad, as I think you know, I'm legally obligated to not make to not ask about those things. Oh. Yeah. I've had to sign. I've had to sign some paperwork. I have to look at so many of those inappropriate t-shirts. at school. Like ever at school. Do you have like yeah. the Bart Simpson with a backwards hat on saying, "No, I didn't get her pregnant"? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We used to, you remember the off-brand right Simpson in the middle shirts? Of Bucky Land. Oh yeah, you got Bucky's inside your yeah. Costco's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am deep in so like I give me like an hour, I can be in a Bucky's like just yeah, I'm like I can be at multiple Bucky's, like north, south, east, west. The funny thing about the Bucky's, they just built this Bucky's between New Orleans and and Florida, like on the other side of Mobile, right? It's the only one out there, and it's this usual stretch of interstate. I decided to stop at it, and when I pulled in, there's seriously like a hundred to two hundred cars in the parking lot. Where do they come from? <laughs> Where? I don't like Texas. You stop you stop there to get gas and it's like a forty five minute wait just to get <laughs> gas at Bucky. <laughs> oh, that's um, strange. I don't I don't understand it. I, I don't know either. But enough about Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> give thanks for give thanks for, thanks Bucky's. for Bucky's. Okay, I I had two other quick questions to ask you guys before we talk about Dolly Parton. So the other is, this is another discussion I had uh, at my house this week. Um, so I, when my grandmother moved from her old house where we she'd always lived to her new house, me and my dad like dug up all the valuable fruit trees and transplanted them to the new house, which seems like a pretty normal thing, and flowers and stuff into that. And my wife said, well, you couldn't take the fig tree now because it's it's like a big fig tree. I'm like, no, it was bigger when we had it over there. It's actually not doing as well as it used to. And and she started saying, well, you would have... I can't remember what she was saying. She was saying, like, why would you move this stuff yourself? That's the kind of thing you have someone do for you. And I said to her, when have you ever known anyone in my side of the family like pay people to do something that they could um, make into a gigantic mess and injure themselves and spend way too much time doing on their own and i was thinking about like i don't think i've ever moved with any help i don't think i've ever i don't know and so think about all the things like i mean i i do get my oil change at the oil change place but outside of that like so i and then i was thinking about it i'm like well i think i'm probably conflating that as being as we often talk about on here as southern stuff versus just normal working class stuff like so i'm just curious is that <laughs> i mean i know i already know what both your answers are going to be but that was my prompt Well, for me, I, it's interesting. I was uh, um, somewhere I was buying some parts, I think, for the toilet, like a new float for the toilet or something. Right. Yeah. And a friend here said, oh, yeah, I forgot Americans do all that kind of stuff themselves. 
And so he had the idea that it was an American thing. And I think part of it is that if I'm in uh, Tennessee or Texas or New York, for that matter, and I call a plumber, that's a serious dent in my pocket. And here I call the plumber and it costs me five bucks plus a part. And so (laughs) it makes a lot more sense for people here to just call the plumber who knows what he's doing or the electrician or whatever. And I think everybody has their own line about what they do for themselves and what they don't. And I think a lot of it just has to do with, can you just throw money at it? And if you can, then you do. Yeah. But yeah, in my family, I know everybody pretty much takes care of their own stuff any time that they can. Yeah, I would say same, like, for for me, like, when we moved to Texas, my wife's job paid, like, they gave us a little bit of money to help us move, nice. and it was such, like, a, oh, my gosh, right, like, right. fancy, and I got a hard time, I got a hard time from everybody in my family, like, oh, you Oh, <laughs> well, look at you, fancy. look at you, helping people move, <laughs> okay. king of the castle. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, yeah, it's actually not that much, it was only, like, you know, like, maybe like a few hundred dollars like to to move my entire estate like comic book collection estate <laughs> yeah my entire comic book collection also what i like to call my estate <laughs> um, yeah yeah i don't know i was just you know i i think i probably overdo it sometimes but i just have never and i think also probably too when i was growing up in Destin, i don't know if there's that many different places you could call to do different things do you know what i mean like there weren't well, that your parents many specialized... didn't tell you about them anyway. Yeah, maybe not. Um, but I also think like it gets to the point of being ridiculous. Like I remember in high school when my car had an issue of overheating, my dad gave me two like gallon gallon jugs full of uh, water that <laughs> I would drive around and pour in the car engine every time I stopped. Um, and, and then it. Well, I I want to say that probably I was in high school before I realized there was anybody that could do work on our house that was not my dad. Um, you know, like, um, I can remember and I, and digging like up a he... sewer line, uh, a lot of times at different houses for the family, like at my grandmother's house oh, yeah. and at my granny's house and at uh, my own house, digging up drainage pipes and sewer lines and things like that when roots would get into them. And we did all that ourselves. Yeah. And I do want to say it was like a guy that came, a guy that came to work from the heart, like a guy that my dad worked with came to do something at the house. I think it was plumbing. And he was like, oh, yeah, like he's coming to help us. And like, oh, well, like this weekend, like next weekend, we're going to go help him do this thing <laughs> at his house. And I was like, oh, OK, like that's Yeah, so it was nice. So, yeah, probably more working class and strictly so. I think so. I think so. Probably so. Um, yeah. All right, so let's talk about this. So, so there's this new podcast. I guess it's pretty new, right? This new podcast called Dolly Parton's America, which is being put out by WNYC Studios and OSM Audio, and it's um, it's Jad Abenrod from uh, Radio Lab, right? I believe. Yes. Yep. Yes. Did you know he was from Tennessee beforehand? He might have mentioned it. I don't know that I knew that. Um, I didn't ever know it. I did. It never stuck with me anyway. He's from Nashville. Yeah. His dad works at Vanderbilt, I yeah. think. Oh, okay. So maybe a friend of a friend. Yeah. Well, I want to say that maybe he had mentioned it on like Radio Lab like a mm-hmm. long time ago. So I was like, 
it wasn't something, it's not like a fact that like sticks out in my head, but like when I was listening to the podcast and he was talking about it, like, oh yeah, like I, I vaguely remember him talking about that like some right. point, like in Radiolab. Yeah, just curiosity, do you guys still listen to Radiolab? Because I haven't in years. Uh, sometimes, I mean, it just depends. I uh, I don't download it every week, but I kind of occasionally, when I'm looking for something to listen to, I scroll through recent episodes to see if there's something that looks interesting. So sometimes, yeah. yeah. And there's some that I play for my students, like uh-huh. the sometimes behave so strangely one. Um, when I'm talking to them about uh, doing audio recordings or anything to me that's sort of the perfect audio story because it works at uh, the level of um uh, of listening and it's about hearing yeah. do you know the one i'm talking about i am trying to think of it i don't know uh, i'll send you a link it's a, it's pretty okay. great okay chad do you still listen to them because I- not regularly, no. Like I kind of fell off maybe around 2016, and I still listen here and there. And I've tried to go back and listen to the back catalog, and I still, but I don't listen regularly. I don't listen to it on a regular basis. Yeah, I kind of fell off with them around the time they had the big controversy, and I don't know if I stopped listening oh. to them because of the controversy, or if that's just the time that I, I started having way less time to listen to podcasts, like. Um, but it did, like, I, you know the controversy I'm talking about, right? The, was it the Agent Orange one? or the, the... Uh-huh, yeah. No. Yes. Okay. David, it kind of, I remember it kind of rubbing me the wrong, the response rubbed me the wrong way at the time, but, like, not enough to make me, like, stop listening. But it was kind of like, hmm, this seems kind of, like, tone deaf on their part. Oh, David, you missed out on this? Yeah. I don't know if I can explain the whole thing quickly, but it had to do with them um, <coughs> uh, interviewing people who were... Uh, from Vietnam, but, like, not ethnically Vietnamese. Like, I can't remember if they were Hmong or Montagnard or people who lived in the countryside who insisted that uh, kind of chemical warfare had happened to them, right? Is this right, Chad? And yeah, they, that's it, yeah. And then their show said, oh, here's why they thought that, but it never really happened. But they thought that because they don't really know anything about science, right? And then some people from that community yeah. were really upset, and so we don't like the way you're characterizing uh, the people that you interviewed, you're kind of laughing at them for saying this happened to them. And then their response to it was kind of, it was kind of like, you know, it, it, a lot of the weaknesses, like post-New Atheist, kind of the I, I, lo- I F and love science crowd, is to always say that, like, um, okay, well, this is the thing people don't understand about science, so they didn't realize it. It was to kind of like gloss over all of that and, and discount people's saying, no, this is something that really happened to us, and we would like you to understand it, by trying to disprove it factually. Right? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't to me, like, I didn't come down on one side of it, or right or wrong, but it was kind of like, this seems like a really tone-deaf way to go about about this thing, rather than just saying, oh, here may be some weaknesses in our approach, and here are some, some ways that we could do it better, or here are some things that our approach just doesn't see, and there's where we messed up. I don't know. It was kind of weird. Yeah. Um, and I think it just made me when I heard, when I listened to later podcasts and they were kind of laughing and being clever about stuff, it seemed a little less clever to me. Does that make sense? Yep. Uh, anyway, okay, so let's move into this. They, they did, they've done this episode, or this, this series of episodes about Dolly Parton. So both of you are from East Tennessee, so do you mind either of you talking about kind of like the, 
the the figure that Dolly Parton is or the role that she plays, kind of, if you're growing up in East Tennessee? No? Go okay. Ahead, well, Ted, you, you start know. out? <laughs> yeah, so you grow up, and, like, Dolly Parton is sort of, like, a mythical, like, figure. She's, like, this country girl made good, uh... You know, she came from the mountains of, you know, the mountains of, uh, the Smoky Mountains, uh, Sevierville, Pigeon Forge, like that area, and she went to Nashville and, uh, just turned the country music scene on its head and wrote lots of great songs and has, um, and <clears throat> she has never, even though she doesn't, I don't think she lives in Sevierville, but she has still has kept lots of roots in Sevierville and Pigeon Forge and has done lots of great things for the community in um, in that area. So she is sort of like a mythical, like, oh, she she is a, like, she was, like, the first, you know, a lot of people regard her as the first big, like, female country star, uh, first big female superstar, movie star. She was a movie star, um... You know, she was, you know, has multi like a business person, you know, resurrected this uh, failing amusement park in the Smokies and sort of helped to reinvigorate, like, the, the, the business, uh, like, invigorate the economy in, like, Sevier County. Um, so that's kind of how she's, that's how my people look upon her as, a, yeah. Well, I grew up My with, um, um, like, she was on the radio all the time when I was growing up, and my parents, I think, um, my siblings and I were all pretty much uh, firmly ensconced in rock and roll, and my parents listened to older country music uh, more from their youth than even the, the 60s. Uh, so they, they didn't, I remember Porter Wagner Show being on, uh, and watching it occasionally because there was nothing else on. And um, uh, Kaz Walker, a kind of local, um, I guess, uh, questionable legend in the Knoxville area, had a country <laughs> music uh, show on in the morning. And there was Nashville, USA, one thing and another. And I remember um, Cole Porter's um, sequin suits. Were a big uh, deal, not sequin, but Cole, Cole Porter or Porter Wagner? Because I don't know. Cole Porter, Porter might Porter have Wagner. had sequin suits. Cole Porter had his own thing going, but uh, but not he in East Tennessee. Yeah, um, um, Porter Wagner. Sorry, and um, so she was always sort of present as somebody who I knew. A lot of times, as a punchline, they talk about that in the podcast quite a bit about yeah. how much she participated yeah. in being a punchline and. Mm that she's a pretty good sport about it all. And uh, her explanation is, I wouldn't look like this. I wouldn't dress like this. I wouldn't present myself like this if I wasn't in on the joke. And uh, at the time, I'm not sure how much I realized that. But uh, then she started doing movies. And I remember 9 to 5. Um, I think that was early on in the days of uh, HBO. And so I watched it a lot of times over when I lived in a house when I was in college briefly that had HBO. And uh, uh, then the best little whorehouse in Texas and stuff. Oh, yeah. And then uh, she kind of fell off my radar just as one of the older country acts until she did Little Sparrow, which was where she kind of went back to mountain music and bluegrass music. And I listened to that a lot. 
And, uh, you know, I've always been kind of a fan, but she hasn't been really central to my life or to the people in my family. But Mm -hmm. but definitely somebody who I knew about and who I had given some thought before recently. Yeah. Well, so I should specify, too, we're probably going to have to make this a multiple parter because you guys have made it through the whole series of the podcast. I thought it was one episode, and so I've only made it through two episodes uh, for today. So, (laughs) um, yeah. My typical, typical. But so let me ask you this, though. So she's from Pigeon Forge or Sevierville, right? So Yeah, outside of Sevierville. Sevierville. Outside of it. So we think of that area now as being like a, like, like, kind of like Branson, like a tourist area um, for a, a certain class and type of tourist. But like, what, what did that area used to be? Like, why is it significant that she came from there? Well, where she came from was way back up in a hollow, and it was um, um, really impoverished. And and Sevier County's always been, it's always had a lot of poverty, but not strictly been defined by it, because there was always Sevierville, which was not a, a thriving megalopolis or anything, but was a prosperous little town. Um, and if you go back, one of my favorite stories, maybe we'll do something on it at some time, was about the white caps and the blue bills who were basically Klansmen and anti Klansmen who had mm-hmm. this whole kind of war up there um, in I think it was the late eighteen hundreds but there's a good pamphlet that was written on it and it's just an interesting story but yeah it's um it's kind of rough and uh parts of it are really poor and like I would get like we would go there. I had fa- like I my dad's family is from like the Sevierville area, and we would go up to Sevierville, uh, um, the Seymour, Sevierville area, and yeah, it was like yeah, there were parts of it that were very poor, but then it was like yeah, this is just like a kind of a bigger, like this is a small city, like kind of out in the outskirts of Knoxville, and then there was like Pigeon Forge, which was sort of oh, this is another kind of smaller city um that has uh kind of maybe more geared toward people from that might be tourists and then you go into gatlinburg that's like oh this is the fancy place for you know people that can afford you know like fancy log cabins and stuff and want to live in the mountains and that was kind of like the early like the early years and then kind of like i remember we used to go to silver dollar city which is now dollywood and that was like a just a theme park in Pigeon Forge. And it's kind of as, you know, Silver Dollar City became Pigeon Forge. I mean, became um, Dollywood. And then it's sort of around... I mean, I don't know if Dollywood was the reason why Pigeon Forge became sort of a gigantic sort of urban, you know... Well, not urban, but like a big development. A lot of development, a lot of shopping and tourism and stuff like that. And... It's just kind of grown and grown and grown and grown and Silver Dollar City. Um, I went to when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and uh, believe it or not, the only photograph of me in a Confederate uniform <laughs> is from <laughs> a tin-type photo from Silver Dollar City with uh, uh, some members of my family uh, all dressed up in costumes uh, because they used to do tin-type photography there. And um, I'm sure I could probably dig that out if I had the heart for it. Yeah. yeah. 
I do remember I do remember when I found out like we would go to Silver Dollar City maybe like once a year. And then I found out like somebody like I think maybe my mom or my grandma's like, Oh, like do you know Dolly Parton bought Silver Dollar City and now she's gonna chat and I was like, No Like she's like it's gonna be real like she's gonna ruin Silver Dollar City. And and then I remember we went the next year, like the first, like maybe the first time it was Dollywood and I'm like I don't like what's the difference? I don't understand like what's the difference? Um, and it did become <laughs> they, they still had the flooded like, mine, right? Yeah, like the flooded mine was there, like the log flume. And she built like it up. All bigger. of that stuff. She's gonna turn Silver Dollar City into Dog Patch USA. <laughs> yeah, that's what I uh, how Well our dare friend you? um um uh Rochelle who um yes. uh, died just a couple of years ago, but her yeah. son uh Ernie is from East Tennessee and um but he's gone off and studied art and is a um an artist and a set builder and one thing and another but when his mom called him i think he was doing some sort of um um like visiting artist thing in florida at the time which might have been what put it in his mind but she told him that they were building dollywood in sevierville and she was really excited. He was really, really excited about it. And then she explained to him that it wasn't Salvador Dollywood, <laughs> that it was Dolly Parton Dollywood. And you know, well, they I mean, have the Dolly Museum down in um, yeah, uh, Florida. Tampa. So maybe that's where he made the well, connection. I was say, but... wouldn't, wouldn't that be absurd to have a Dolly Museum in uh, Pigeon Forge, but then there's one in Tampa? So, like, what, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it would be surreal. And that would yes. probably be part of the point. <laughs> I done melted my watch. <laughs> Whew. It's a Ooh. it's a hot day. It's a scorcher yeah. out there. You melt yeah. your watch. Yeah. Do, do you remember Dogpatch USA? I remember, uh, like Dogpatch was the uh, uh, town from Little Abner. Well, Abner, and yeah, I remember little... that there was a place yeah. called Dog Patch USA that was a uh, was that a was that like a theme park? Yeah, it was out by Jasper in Arkansas, and I remember when we were a kid. I can't remember if we were going to go there and it was closed, or if it was just closed and we drove past it. But there was like a big little Abner outside. Um, and it's up in the mountains. <laughs> big little Abner. Big little Abner, and I. One of the... yeah, it was kind of like I guess it opened before. Um, Dollywood, but it was kind of that kind of thing where it was going to be the the uh, redneck um, theme park, uh, and it was around for a while. It's it's gone now. I think Silver Dollar City started out in Arkansas. I'm not sure about that. The I know that there was more than one. There wasn't just the one in yeah. Sevierville. I want to say yeah, there was like more than maybe yeah, maybe there was one in Arkansas or maybe one in Missouri. Like, yeah, like there were multiple Silver Dollar cities. I'm just, I was trying to, I was looking up the dates on Dogpatch USA, and in 1967, the Brookings Institute put out a report on whether they should have dog, they should make Dogpatch USA or not, uh, but Brookings Institute expressed doubts about the likelihood of a success, citing the failure of other theme parks that had popped up trying to replicate Disneyland. <laughs> oh, Brookings Institute's against Dogpatch USA, another one on the board. How dare they? So this podcast is interesting. It starts out. The first episode is called uh, "Was It Sad Ass Songs?" Um, yeah, it, and it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's talking about Dolly Parton's uh, like 
older work when she was she was really young like she started in her like late teens early 20s moving to nashville and about how she's putting out all these really sad ballads but as you know we've talked about with people who i think was probably april mcgregor and probably phil about music in that area it tends to gravitate towards these kind of sad songs right lugubrious lugubrious mm-hmm. downright yeah. lugubrious that's having to do with vegetables, right? Songs about vegetables. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, um, and her songs, you know, it's like, I think that's, for one thing, she kind of says that's what she thought a country song was. Uh, right. And that's what she grew up on. And, and he goes into a sort of interesting digression about murder ballads and Knoxville mm. Girl and... Um, yeah, there's a there's a long, long tradition of that. I remember when I was a kid, we learned Tom Dooley in school, mm-hmm. which is a song of yeah. one of those songs about uh, um, somebody who's murdered his girlfriend and is waiting for the gallows. And yeah, um, um, yeah those sorts of songs are really popular in hers. Um, I remember when I was late teens, early twenties, we used to have. Um, uh, parties where we um, would put on Dolly Parton's Just The Way I Am, but we would play it at 75 instead of 33. <laughs> and um, we would, um, um, went through various uh, mind-altering uh, experiences and um, then would just dance to that, and we called them polka parties. Um <laughs> But that was a, that was a big part of uh, uh, our socializing at one point, and she had on that uh, there was a song about uh, somebody getting killed in a car crash, the something county accident, and the one about in this mental institution where uh, she's saying, "Daddy, come and get me because my um, uh, husband or boyfriend has had me locked away." And Dahlia in the podcast yeah. tells the story, but the true story behind that. And, well, so, and uh, yeah, a lot of sad stuff. I think talking to um, our friend April about it, she she has said before that kind of the music of Appalachia or the traditional music was kind of in some ways like a, a news source where it, you have all these horrific stories about like murders and stuff. But it's stories about things that happened like, you know, 30 miles down the road uh, where people are kind of recounting these incidents um, over and over again. And I, it seems like there's some kind of, of them. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, uh, I mean, I think there's like a mythological aspect to them, too. But I think, you know, if you think about the kind of isolated communities uh, in kind of in the industrial age, like a lot of kind of horrible things do happen and aren't communicated uh, quickly and do kind of go into this like mythological format of, of ballads. Well, there's a lot of stories that uh, about what happened in Europe and then people got transported as punishment, and the uh, songs are about the stories about uh, getting right. arrested for poaching or right. for murder or for uh, sleeping Dead. with the wrong person or whatever. Right. And those stories uh, got told over and over again, too. Right, right. It, it, one of the funny things about country music, this, and this kind of happens with reggae music, too, we, we think about... Um, bluegrass as being older than it is in a way and i think bluegrass kind of yeah. comes after this kind of sad ballad period where it's kind of a reframing 
of these sad ballads, but about being like the industrialization process and the in the hinterlands, right? In the same way that uh, we don't need to go into reggae here, but like reggae comes like after like ska music and stuff, right? But it's kind of a reframing of these these issues. But I think bluegrass is like that for these old old ballads, right? In some ways. Yep. I'm just saying. Um, I'm just saying this because I spent all week listening to 50 different versions of uh, old home plays. Anyway, Chad, you were saying? Well, no, I was just going to say bluegrass music was, yeah, like it was uh, kind of like old-timey music came before bluegrass music, and like right. bluegrass was sort of a, like, yeah, like a kind of a new, like we're going to take these new, like these, we're going to use these instruments that other people have used and incorporate them into this new type of music and talk about what's going on with with us or and find these older songs like these older things that have happened like old uh like knoxville girl mm -hmm. and stuff and maybe put them in a more maybe mo modernize them quote unquote i don't know well i think yeah, bluegrass is all about modernization right if you look at the the songs are about it's like uh the mill laid me off and so i had to move to the city or they they tore down uh they tore down our old village and we're all having to work for the man now and things like that right it's about modernization it's kind of a reflection on, on well and the term religion. bluegrass comes out of um, bill monroe's music and he's not long dead and earl scruggs yeah. invented the type of banjo picking that is the standard now for bluegrass so uh you know the people who who invented the word and who invented the methods are right. just recently deceased Right. So I think it's a good transition to talk about Dolly Parton again. And I think one thing, you know, I think we have to point out and that I keep thinking about listening to the podcast is she's really like a one of a kind talent musically. Right. Like it's undeniable whether you like her music or not. She's kind of ridiculously talented, you know, songwriting, vocally, instrumentally. She plays tons of it. She's a very good guitar player, a really, really good guitar player. And every other instrument I've heard her play, she's pretty good at. Right. Uh, and, you know, they tell the stories in this podcast about this is one of the tensions between her and Porter Wagner is that essentially she's better than him at all of this stuff. Right. It doesn't come out and say that, but she talks about how he wasn't really songwriting much. And she was just knocking out, you know, the, the kind of is now it's a pretty famous story, but she knocks out um, Jolene and I will always love you on probably the same night. Like she writes both of these. Right. Uh, on the same night, which is... Well, insane. that's the other thing. She's not just incredibly talented. She's incredibly prolific. Right. Uh, apparently was just writing right. constantly. Right. Uh, there's, this, there's this great quote. I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but this is a great quote that I wrote down where she says one of the problems between her and Porter Ra Wagner was he didn't know how many dreams I had, right? And so he's like, why can't you just be this performer and she's, you know, writing songs, playing songs. She's just really, really talented. And so I, I, you know, I was trying to think of any comparison to her. I keep coming back with somebody like Prince, who's just obviously, there, there are people who are just obviously more talented at, at music than the people around them, right? And she tells a story about, and I've always wondered, I, I finally looked this up once figuring it out, because the guitar part for Jolene's really just as famous as the lyrics to the song. And I always wondered if she played it. She doesn't play it on the recording that's most known. Uh, Chip Young, who is a studio guitar player, plays it. But it's clear from the podcast she wrote it because she talks about sitting down and playing it for Porter Wagner. And then Porter Wagner is trying to teach it to the band who's going to play it instead of her to kind of show off his chops. 
but then he can't play it. So she sits down and plays it for them. Right. Well, there's a whole episode about Jolene that I just finished. That oh, is episode six, I think. I and so uh, when you get to that, there's a lot more about um, just what the sound is. And they talk about how medieval it is in a way, mm-hmm. uh, the sound. Um, but yeah, I think um, um, mu- musically, she was very interesting and lyrically kind of all over the place. Because one of the things that the this podcast does mm-hmm. is... You know, when she wrote Jolene, she didn't necessarily know that that was going to be this huge, big, important song, more so right. than the other dozen songs that she wrote that right, month right. or or that week or however long it took her to write them back then. But, um, um, you know, it's, it's kind of career-defining in a lot of ways, and I think that part of it is that it's just what people responded to. And I mm-hmm. think partly just the volume of work gives everybody something to respond to. And some of the stuff that she gets a little grief about uh, in the podcast and then in an article that we read is tied into what makes her easy to relate to or, or easy to adore, I think. Uh, just the fact that she won't say mean things about people Mm-hmm. Even Porter Wagner, when she's talking about him, right. uh, she says, you know, we had some disagreements. He didn't quite understand me, uh, but she treated him great uh, in the long run. Right. And she won't say mm-hmm. bad things about him. Uh, right. Just like she won't say bad things about just about anybody. Sure. And, yeah, so we have this other article who's um, written by... Well, I guess Chad's friend and a friend of a friend of, of ours, wow. uh, Jessica Wilkerson, Dr. Jessica Wilkerson. But I think maybe we should save yeah. that for the next episode of Dolly Parton. There's a lot to go into. There's a lot to go into on it. But uh, I, it's an interesting article for me to read, and I think there's a lot to talk about in it. But another one of those that, that came up in these the early podcasts is that with these kind of old-timey sh- songs, she's taking them and flipping them around to writing them from the victim of the song's point of view or from the woman's point of view. So she is the person locked in the mental institution or the the subject of the song is the person who was murdered in this infamous killing, which is interesting thing to do. And then, I can't remember who, but a, a musicologist in here says that it's not that she's the only person who did it. It's just that she was really good at it, right? Kind of yeah. putting, putting her inside the situation. And, you know, like a lot of successful songwriters, I think if you go through her whole catalog, there's a lot of there's a lot of songs like I don't care about. There's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of songs you can put by the wayside. But that's true of that's true of Prince. That's true of Paul McCartney. That's true of Bob Dylan. That's true of John Prine. I hate to say it. I'm going to hit by lightning. But there's songs, you know, that you can <laughs> take or leave if you're producing a lot of songs, right? It just happens. But yeah. but that she had this thing early in her career that she could do, which was to write uh, these kind of murder ballads or these sad-ass songs and then, then kind of flip them around to, be, to sing them from uh, the person's perspective. And not only as a victim, but as saying, um, no, this is, this is kind of what happened and here's why it worked out that way, right? Which is interesting. Well, I think that she writes uh, that all of her songs, or at least these uh, sort of important songs that we're talking about, that they're personal to her. And so Mm -hmm. she writes them from the woman's point of view 
um, because that's how she feels him early on. And also she realizes that's where his success is. And she's right. all about being successful. She likes being popular. She likes making right. money. She likes being a celebrity. Uh, right. And, um, uh, and so it works and she sticks with it. But also, you know, she, it's easy to forget with all the rhinestones and the wigs and mm -hmm. everything else the actual reality of being as poor as she was poor and from mm -hmm. as much of a quote unquote backwater as she was from and all the rest. And, um, you don't just put that chip down and quit being the underdog because you have financial success. Right. Uh, you keep on, uh, or at least if you're a Dolly Parton, you keep on identifying with, uh, somebody who's been beaten down. Right, yeah, I think that's the case. Um, and so I think maybe this will be the, the kind of last thing we'll touch on for today with this. But uh, th there, there's been a kind of a recent, at least from what I've seen in the kind of sphere that I observe, like kind of appropriation of her as kind of, if not a left-wing icon, a feminist icon, right? Um, and it's been a little bit odd for me to watch because she's been kind of a constant, like she's not... Like you're saying about your household, it wasn't like, wow, Dolly Parton's like pictures on our wall, but she's kind of been a consistent celebrity, right? Or a consistent kind of part of the of the culture through that, like producing stuff through that. And so she's been all kind of always present and always seemed like a really cool person and a decent person. We also know her through uh, the Imagination Library, right? So she's always seemed like a person who was interested in things. Yeah. Um, but there's kind of this, I don't want to say demand being placed on her, but this question asked of her, like, are you are you a feminist icon or are you a feminist? And interestingly, in these first episodes, her answer is a very quick and strong no, right? Uh, so I'm wondering what either of you make of that. I think that there's, um, it sort of ties into stuff that we'll talk about later, but mm -hmm. she, she, the fact that she doesn't scold people or preach at people doesn't mm -hmm. mean that she's not uh, a feminist. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that she doesn't embrace that label doesn't mean that she's not a feminist. If you look right. at what she does and what she means to people and what her art says, and this idea that she has to stand up and scold people and alienate people and preach at people in order to be, to demonstrate her bona fides to me is a little bit, um, her bona fides, excuse me, um, is, um, I don't know. It just seems like a, a type of liberalism that is doesn't come out of her lived experience. That um, um, it seems to be coming from a kind of privileged place, and also a place that is preaching to the choir a lot. And she absolutely is not trying to do that. Um, there's a thing where they talk about her appearing on stage with um, uh, Lily Tomlin and um, Jane Fonda, and uh, it was the first time that the cast of 9 to 5 had been on stage. It was, I suppose it must have been the Emmys or something. And uh, the, two, um, um, uh, the two others did a sort of uh, series of jokes uh, based on 9 to 5, but pointedly directed at Donald Trump, and she didn't participate in it. Mm. But my point would be, like, did that move the needle anywhere? Did it move the conversation? Did it convert people or anything else? Not as much as her song, 9 to 5, did. 
right. not as much as uh, you know. I don't. Uh, she's well. She's pretty flat out in um, talking about uh, gay people and about uh, how gay people should be treated and how they should be respected and all this other stuff. And I think she would say the same thing about women. She just wouldn't say I'm a feminist while she was saying women need to be uh, treated like people and treated with respect and treated as equals. Yeah. Chad, do you have any thought on it? Yeah, it's a... I kind of go back and forth on this. I mean, David has... I mean, that's a, a lot of good points that... I, I think now, like, we live in a moment where we need everyone to say that... Uh, like everyone needs to come out and say, "Oh, we're against the, we're against the bad guys. Like we're against the bad guys." And she is from a different era, and a different time. That her way is more, yeah. That she's more of an actions, like she'll let her actions speak for her, more than her, more than her word. Like she'll let her actions speak for her. But then like she'll come like, well, like everybody. Like I like all my fans. Like when she says she likes all her fans. Some fans are troubled by that. Like, well, you don't like the fans that I don't like. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And like, yeah, like when you say that, that whole thing about Lily Tom winning Jane Fonda and doing the, like, what, yeah, what did, what did that, what did, what did that accomplish more than, did that accomplish anything else more than like Dolly Parton making a, uh, you know, I think she made a uh, a breast. She made a titty joke. I think after like in response <laughs> to that was like her, like um, maybe she's original dirtbag. So man. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of like I'm torn. I'm torn. Um, you know, I see her point, and and then I see why a lot of people. I see her point, but then I also see why a lot of people are frustrated. Um, you know, like I guess they want her to be the. Everybody wants Dolly Parton to be the Dolly Parton that they want. Right. No. Yeah, I mean, I think that's and she, what she doesn't want is she doesn't want to be the Dixie Chicks. She doesn't. She likes making yeah. money. She likes being famous. She likes making a lot of people happy and having an audience that includes uh, people who, when she tells them that it's unchristian to be down on gay people, she wants an audience that that's news to instead of just saying it to gay people and their allies. Right. right. Yeah, and it, well, as I was listening to her talk, I was thinking, you know, probably, I was thinking about, well, either of my grandmothers, who, I, who um, were both very kind of strong, independent women, but I think if they had been asked the question, are you a feminist, would have also hesitated to answer that. Do you know what I mean? Like, just because it's a different era, and there's been, and they the thinking on it would, about what that word means and what that entails, right? And the answer to it, what that means that you belong to might have come across differently, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that you're right, David, that it matters a lot more, like, like what she does. And, I, you know, if you listen to... If you listen to all the story about her and Porter Wagner, is you know, what are her actions during that? And her actions are of being that she deserves to be more than, than a woman in the act, right? That she deserves to be recognized as a songwriter and a musician and a performer and a businesswoman, right? And that, that that's kind of her place. And it seems like, you know, she's really right on in that stuff. And you can't, I don't know if you can ask everyone to use the, 
to have the correct ideological language that you would like them to have all the time, right? And it, this is, to translate it more broadly, this is the problem that we run into in all kind of trying to organize working class people in any kind of leftist project, right? Is like, uh, if you kind of bristle at that, well, we don't like the the language that you use about this, or we would like you to frame right. it our yeah. way, I don't know how much progress there is to be made in that, right? Um, so, of course, I would also like every celebrity or every successful person that I respect to think about things the way I do and phrase them that way. But I don't know if that's – I don't know how to what degree that's a reasonable demand. And I also think there's more – probably something more interesting in her immediate reaction being no. There's probably more of a discussion there than her just very easily saying, oh, yes, I am, right? While that's affirming to it and, you know, I think that she is in the end – a feminist, whether she says that or not, um, that there's probably something to discuss about. Well, why is she uncomfortable with that? Like, what does that mean? Like, where, why would that be? I think it partly has to do with just how the word's been rebranded by um, by reactionaries. But I was also sure. going to say that a big part of the reason that she doesn't do a lot of bragging and she doesn't badmouth people and she doesn't she's uncomfortable um, branding herself too much with politics or whatever there's a kind of reticence that's part of Appalachian culture mm -hmm. um, that b braggarts are uh, held in a certain amount of contempt in mm -hmm. a certain uh, part of Appalachian culture and Talking your politics very loud is looked on with a certain kind of right. contempt in a lot of Appalachian culture that uh, walking around sort of running your mouth off about all of your social opinions, um, uh, even in a podcast, might be <laughs> considered uh, uh, um, in bad taste and a sign that you're lacking in character in some way. Uh, from a certain part of, and I see it here in Mexico, that the poor people from the country are very humble in the way that they speak there. They can be very ambitious. They have definite ideas about the world and about justice and what's right and wrong and stuff, but they don't uh, articulate it in the same way because they're coming from a place without a voice, I think is part of it. Yeah. And, and I I think, uh, like, something else the... I was going to say that... No, go ahead. I was just going to say off. one other thing. Speaking of voices, uh, when I listen to her talk in the podcast, I mm. over and over again hear my granny's voice and my sister's voice <laughs> because yeah. of the accent, because they're right. from uh, uh, Union County rather than Sevier County, but it's not so far away, and it's the same sort of Foothills uh, accent. And just so the cadence and the pronunciation and everything else, I keep hearing family members uh, when I hear her speak. And so maybe I'm a little um, um, uh, over-enthusiastic in, <laughs> a little yeah. over-enthusiastic <laughs> in my defense of all things Dolly. Well, I, I want to say, I think a lot of, and especially younger people, people I mean, I'm I'm pretty young. I'm pretty young, but people even younger than me. Um, <laughs> I can confirm kind of that. Chad. Chad is young. Yeah, they equate that. Uh, they equate her like, well, I don't want to say anything bad. They kind of equate it to the oh, well, there's good pe there's good views on right, all right, sides. Right. Like there's kind of like the all sides right. argument, and even like the li and not even maybe not even like the Donald Trump all sides, but like the 
sort of like centrist, like lib Democrat, mm-hmm. like, oh, let's listen to every, like, let's, let's listen to all the people, let's listen to people on the center, like the center left, and we'll listen to people on the center right, and we'll listen to people in the middle, and then we've listened to everybody. And I think it's sort of, it gets equated with that, where she's actually, maybe, she's literally wanting to, I'm willing to, like, I want to hear everybody, and I want to communicate to everybody, and on a, like, if we have something in common, then we can actually communicate with each other. I don't know if that made any sense, but that makes sense. I think that's kind of, like maybe Dolly's view versus what a lot of younger people that might be critical of right. Dolly. Yeah. And, and even for like, like, I can you know, see kind of where they're coming from. Yeah, anyone like our age, like being able to say, ask a question, are you a feminist or not? It's a really easy answer. It's yes, right? It's like there's nothing there's nothing surrounding that this controversial. But uh, so maybe that's a good place to stop discussion about it for today. But I want to leave you uh, speaking about her practice versus what she actually says with um, one of my favorite lines that she had. And she's also, you know, very quick-witted on her feet when uh, Porter Wagner scolded her by saying, I made you. And she said, yeah, you made me mad. And that's when uh, she left the show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, that's the end uh, for this week. Everybody have a nice uh, Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Night. Bye. Yeah. At, At least... All right. Do you want me to say anything? I'm gonna see. I'm gonna see your mom for Thanksgiving. Do you want me to say anything to her? <laughs> <laughs>